Welcome to Cinemaholics. I'm John Negroni, your usual host from the main show. And with me is my usual co-host, Will Ashton. Hello, Will. Hi there. Well, Will, we have to be slightly quieter because we are talking about a movie where if you make even the most ambiguous sound, sound hunting sonic creatures will come murder us. Okay, yeah, so I'll be extra quiet. I I figured you already knew that because this is part two. Uh, That's right. We're talking about A Quiet Place Part Two, a movie that was supposed to come out last March and is now coming out this week in theaters, only in theaters Mm -hmm. from Paramount. Well, Ashton, we're going to talk about this movie. We're going to discuss, yes, this is John Krasinski's sequel to the first one. We should start, though, with some setting. This is a direct sequel. A Quiet Place, you and I talked about this film, I believe, with Maverick Hines back in 2018. Yeah, there was a, a guest, too. I forget who it was, but there's there are four people on that podcast, I remember. That's right. And I remember really liking this movie. I remember having a great time at the movie theater. For me, it made a lot of sense that they kind of waited for part two to come to theaters instead of putting it out on video on demand or premium video on demand. To be clear, they had the world premiere of this movie on March 8th, 2020. And then the pandemic really just happened like that same week. And mm-hmm. I remember John Krasinski even put out a tweet and was like, you know what? This is a movie that should be in theaters. So we're going to delay it. And they delayed it like a whole year. So yeah. here it is. It's finally out in release. And it's it's following up a pretty big box office success, which was the first movie from three years ago now. And I, yeah, I think we both liked that movie quite a bit, right? Yeah, I liked it a good bit. I rewatched it prior to this one and it's a little bit easier to poke holes when you've seen it the first time but especially seeing it in theaters i think it really just uh became a memorable and worthwhile experience it's also you know just super tight like i think it's like exactly 90 minutes long and it moves like a bullet train like it's a really well-paced film i remember that as well and yeah it was a good time yeah, the the remember the logical inconsistencies, a lot of those plot contrivances. They're, they're definitely more apparent thinking about both of these films afterward. Sure. But that's the thing is like when you're in the theater and you're watching them, you're not you're hopefully you're not thinking about those things as much. Yeah. And that's certainly been my experience both times. We both saw this in a theater, which is great to see. We're both vaccinated. We're both feeling pretty safe and healthy uh, in this kind of new world we're kind of carving out this summer. But let's talk about part two of this movie. It picks up right after part one. And to be clear, this is a horror survival movie. Yeah, no, I was just going to say it also is kind of fitting that they chose to release the movie now because there is kind of like a meta narrative of the characters are kind of going out into a world that they are familiar with but don't really understand. And people who are going to movies are kind of in a similar position right now, oddly enough. So that kind of uh, unintentionally became a parallel. Uh, would you agree? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I was going to get to that. Sure, okay. Sorry, <laughs> We're talking about like the setup. The gun, yeah. Sure. Jump at the gun, but you know that's that's the thing. It's you're trying to make this this conversation as tight as the movie because, like the first movie, it is only about an hour and a half. This one is 97 minutes, and some of that extra time comes in the form of an intro prologue that happens in the very beginning of the film. And it, it a lot of people have said multiple things about this scene. It's like a prologue in the sense that it's taking you through almost in real time the first 10, 15 minutes of this creature invasion i think they're supposed to be aliens it's never made incredibly clear yeah because they show the that spaceship crawling i don't know if that's supposed to be just a general plane or their spaceship but yeah i I always assume they're aliens 
I assume they were aliens as well. They, yeah, yeah. And we won't get into detail of like what that intro prologue sort of is uh, telling us. But the, the gist of it is that we see this family kind of in the real world, like kind of in the before times. And it's kind of an excuse for us to hang out with John Krasinski again, uh, his character in this movie. Now, of course, we're going to have to spoil things that happened in A Quiet Place Part 1. So there is that warning. But yes, in A Quiet Place the first movie, we, of course, see John Krasinski pass away. Uh, his character, of course, dies in that movie. He's the father figure who's kind of keeping everything together. And that movie ends with the family kind of being on their own, ostensibly. And part two opens up with him back in the cast. Uh, and we are also introduced to another character who is played by Killian Murphy, who we might see later in the sequel. What did you think of the intro prologue before we get into the actual movie? They feel like such separate things. I kind of want to get your read on that part of it first. Yeah, um, I thought it was going to kind of bug me for that reason because it kind of felt like it was going to be a bit of a prologue, like almost an excuse to put John Krasinski back in front of the camera. But I feel like those the opening was probably my favorite scene in the film. Granted, it takes a lot from War of the Worlds, Steven Spielberg's. War of the Worlds, and just in terms of like how it builds up suspense, and just the kind of like general like ground level sense of not knowing what's happening, and uh, just general sense of like chaos in the streets and stuff like that. But um, I thought it was pretty well done and pretty appropriately tense. So I was a fan of that sequence. There is a scene involving like a bus, for example, that's like coming sure. down the street. I mean, it's just great. Oh yeah, filmmaking. that was also uh, trying to rip off a little bit of a Quran, I guess, because they were doing like the children of man, the children of men thing there with like the spinning camera in the car and stuff but a little bit yeah yeah, yeah. it's kind of easy yeah kind of easy to go there i definitely think that war of the worlds is a good comparison point for this movie and i think that as i was watching this intro i was having that thought of like what is this really supposed to be adding and i was hoping that it wasn't going to go into a problem that I actually think the movie doesn't trip up in, but we might get into that later, which is the typical, like the sequel-itis, sequel-itis, however you say that, where it feels like everything has to be explained. I mean, we have to have like an origin or we have to have like a reason for these creatures. The first movie leaves all of that out. First movie is just sort of like, they're here. They can do sure. this thing where they can hear from hundreds of miles away and you have to be completely silent all the time in order to survive. Right, and that's why I thought it was going to bug me, but I thought the movie was pretty effective about not revealing too much in the opening. Just generally, just like, hey, here's why this family was able to survive during this. They kind of have like their own system, like they're not perfect, but they do kind of... They, they, they're, it makes sense, like, watching those sequences, why they were able to survive as long as they did in this uh, post-apocalyptic world and stuff. But, yeah, I mean, it didn't... It, it, there wasn't like a new sequence where we were trying to figure out... I guess there was kind of, but it wasn't... Uh, it didn't feel as over-explaining as you were suggesting. Like in the first movie, this is directed and written by John Krasinski himself. The characters and I think part of like this world are sort of developed by Brian Woods and Scott Beck. And as I mentioned before, this picks up right after part one. In the first movie, we sort of end it with the Abbott family, with Emily Bunt uh, returning as the mother character, Evelyn, and the two children. They're both kind of like in their teen years, sort of. Uh, Noah Jupe is the younger one, and then Millicent Simmons is the eldest child. Yeah. And she is, she is deaf, and she figures out 
with the aid of her family, that her hearing aids on the right frequency and used with an amplifier can actually create an opening to take out these creatures. Which So that's how the first movie ends, is with them being able to exploit this weakness. And it's considered a huge breakthrough because up until this point, seemingly no one has figured out a way to reliably take out these creatures. They're too fast. They're too bulletproof. They're pretty resistant to fire and other types of things. So the fact that they were able to find any sort of way to handle these creatures long enough to survive is treated as a big reveal. And so this movie opens in kind of an interesting way where it's the morning after those terrible events. Their father, played by John Krasinski, is now gone. And they're leaving their sort of desolate farm, which has been torn to shreds, to find refuge somewhere else. Uh, There is a there are a few moments in the first film that allude to when they light the fires uh, atop the grain mill. They see that there are other camps or other human beings who are finding ways to survive. And so that's how this movie begins. They set out, uh, especially now that Emily Blunt's character, Evelyn, has a baby, and they clearly they need help. They need resources. They need a place to take refuge. And so they go in search of that. And from there, yeah, the movie is a bit more sprawling this time around. It's a bigger setting. We see the characters kind of separate actually here and there. But I think very similar to the first film, it's a very tight sequel. It's a very action-packed movie that relies a lot on a technique that Krasinski really likes, which is intercutting two very distinct set pieces and finding interesting ways to edit them with each other so that the tension just feels doubled even though you're following two very different sequences and it reminds me a lot of the type of filmmaking we see from Christopher Nolan I'm sure that Krasinski is taking a lot of inspiration from him there and yeah I've personally I think this movie delivers in very much the same way as part one but what do you think well um, ultimately, I, I do think it's a solid sequel. I, I think in some ways it's better than the first movie, and a, a few other ways it's worse. Um, primarily, as you were suggesting, I, I think there is a danger of, like, when we explore more into the world, are we kind of taking away from what made the original film interesting or a little bit uh, uh, tighter as terms of its being, like, an allegory or metaphor for parenthood? I do appreciate this film... It is adding to that. It's exploring the idea of like um, I mean I don't know if it's a spoiler to say this at all, but um, just the idea of like the first movie is just the general dangers of parenting and like parents kind of learning to like walk into a world where like seemingly everything can be a, a huge danger or risk. In this film, it's more about like acceptance that kids kind of have to find their own path. You're suggesting now that they're like becoming teenagers, just kind of learning to. Uh, and trust that they have some independence or that they can handle their own kind of uh, perils in the world while also, you know, being there when you need to. And I don't think the metaphor is quite as neat and tidy as it was in the first film, but I do appreciate, like you said, that um, John Krasinski is allowing himself to be a little bit more nuanced, like expand the world, but he's not overdoing it. Like he, he is still keeping it pretty contained to like a few different set pieces and uh, a few central characters like it does it does feel like a pretty competent film from a directorial standpoint however i do feel like his screenwriting is still 
his weakest uh, of like as terms of him being like an actor writer director i still think screenwriting is probably the weakest job for him not that he's necessarily bad at it i think he is pretty good about being restrained in terms of his narrative and recognizing his strengths and what he wants to tell with these stories but at the same time i do feel like the characters themselves aren't as fleshed out at least some of them because i do think uh less than uh or what's her name is it melissa simmons or, that's right melissa yeah. simmons yeah, I think she's really given a lot of great uh, showcases here, and I do think Noah Jupe is given a little bit more to do, and I appreciate that. But I still feel like Emily Blunt is still often short sighted here. Like I still, like I was hoping this movie would finally give us a little bit more with her, especially now that she's like kind of the lead. And I still feel like I don't really have a good read on her character outside of the circumstances of the film. Like, it just feels like she's kind of just there to service the narrative in both films. And that's disappointing because I do think she clearly is, you know, emotionally invested in these films. I think she does give a generally pretty good performance, but it just feels like Krasinski isn't really giving her as much to do, which is so strange because, you know, it's his wife or his partner in real life. So I always find that to be a bit odd. But yeah, I think generally this is a a decent follow-up. I, I do think Krasinski is improving in some ways as a filmmaker, and I do think generally what works in the first film is uh, seen in this film. Um, I do kind of feel like the novelty isn't quite there as much as it was in the first film, so it may not be quite as tense, at least for me. Like, I didn't find myself quite as... Uh, um, uh, quite as, I didn't feel myself as tense i wasn't feeling as intense as it was the first time but at the same time i do appreciate that the movie itself is trying to like kind of have more moments for character development have more like talk driven scenes so it's not like the first film where it's like constantly like kind of building up the, the suspense as it's going along but yeah i think there's a solid sequel here i don't think it's quite as good as the first one but overall it's 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 not a bad effort i think this movie because it is know it it knows that it's kind of reaching its audience in a different environment here i think that it's making a lot of these choices that are pretty intentional i think sidelining emily blunt's character it, it is unfortunate i think like she does do she has her moments in this movie to be totally clear like she gets to do pretty interesting she has her own action set pieces not like she's sure. not in the movie but yeah, I'm not saying that. in, but, in yeah. terms of the movie's like thematic weight I think it does kind of push her to the side a little bit as being a little bit less crucial to the plot. And I think it's all very much because Krasinski wants part two to be, as you were alluding to, to be about the kids and about the kids kind of stepping up and being able to take care of themselves in this in, in intense world. And I think that, yeah, you're, you're right that, yeah, the gimmick is worn off. And I think that was going to happen no matter what. Like it, it just the novelty's worn off. It, it can't be as tense. But what I do like is that to make up for it, the Krasinski, I think he, he found a way to make this a little bit more relentless. Uh, that first movie has a lot of quiet moments. Uh, there's not a ton of dialogue in that movie. Uh, there, there's certainly a lot of interaction. There's a lot of communication, but there aren't a lot of moments where like, like characters are really sitting down and having like really deep heart to hearts. And in this one, there's a little bit more of that, I thought. And I think that those heart to hearts are probably in, in uh, probably put together in a, a more organized fashion because I think that breaking this family apart for a lot of this film is really helpful because it helps the metaphor of uh, specifically Millicent Simmons' character kind of going out into the world and 
having to sort of see what she's made of, right? And that it's not going to go perfectly. They're not treating her like a superhero character or anything like that, which I appreciated. They're actually like making sure to set out this world is extremely dangerous and you do need other people. You do need friends and allies. And I, I think that this movie avoided a big issue that I was dreading I was watch- as I was watching this. I was, so Killian Murphy gets introduced partway through this movie. We, we sort of see his character in the intro prologue. And when he first comes on, I'm just like, oh, shoot, you know, are, are they really just putting him in this movie because the dad died in the first movie? And so they have to have this sort of like surrogate father kind of thing. And it's like you can't have the family function without this kind of person. And that was that was starting to be like, oh, I hope that's not where this movie goes. And fortunately, I don't think it does. I think it relies more on using him as a surrogate for humanity, trying to find some redemption in this world, trying to find some hope in the hopelessness. And I think that this movie where it trips up a lot is in some of the character arcs. I think like Noah Jupe's character arc is like all payoff, no setup personally. Uh, I think that the cracks in the screenplay definitely show up with Krasinski when it comes to the Noah Jupe character and like some of his character decisions, some of like what he does in the movie. I was very much like this really isn't as strong as his sister's story, which I think was a lot stronger, which was a lot more interesting to follow. And I also thought that he put a lot of care and attention into Killian Murphy's character and what he goes through in this movie. And so all that stuff really worked for me. But, you know, kind of similar to you, it's it's definitely not a movie that is going to, I think, probably hold up perfectly. You know, every time you rewatch it, I'm sure it's going to be one of those movies we rewatch and be like, yeah, that was a strange decision there. But I do appreciate where they made good decisions in this movie, like keeping this world contained, not doing the typical sequels thing, sequel thing where we have the monsters have to be bigger and badder, you know, like the Jurassic world problem, Jurassic park problem where, well, we can't just have a T-Rex this time. Now it has to be a bigger T-Rex instead. They just, it's the same dangers, but like there are more layers added to the world that makes sense and feel a little inevitable. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it does do a couple sequelitis things that bug me. For instance, um, the movie itself, it takes place more in the daytime. So we see the monsters more often, which I think, it was sort of inevitable because we saw the monsters fairly often towards the end of the first movie. But there is, I, I feel like it's less scary knowing what they look like now. I just felt the tension wasn't quite as there. For that reason, a few others, I just don't think, as you're mentioning, because the story is a little bit more layered this time, it's a little bit harder for. Krasinski to sustain the tension as he did in the first movie and likewise the fact that it does allow itself to have kind of it is a little bit more of like a uh, family drama this time as opposed to being a more straightforward horror movie in the first movie as it was like in the first movie but um, generally yeah I do agree with you I think the strengths here are pretty apparent I do think that Krasinski remains a pretty competent filmmaker and I think he recognizes what people appreciate about the first film I also think he takes a few notes and he recognizes that like some of the leaden exposition that he had in the first movie is a little less seen here. For instance, those like headlines where it was like, it's sound. And then like that, like giant whiteboard that everyone yeah. made fun of where it's just like, what is the weakness and stuff like that? He's a little bit better about not doing stuff like that this time around, which I appreciate. Um, and I think that's just, yeah, yeah, I think, and that, you know, that shows like he's growing as a filmmaker and I think he recognizes what was working and what doesn't, but yeah, not a flawless sequel, but I think ultimately, generally it works more than it doesn't. And I do really appreciate uh, 
especially when I was rewatching the first film, I didn't really realize until then how much like sign language really like how much that movie does rely on ALS and how it feels ASL. pretty Sorry, ASL. I apologize. Uh, and it does feel like pretty seamless in how it, it is able to do that in a major uh, motion picture in a way that I feel is pretty progressive. Now, I've heard like some kind of criticisms about like how the movie portrays uh, being death, which it's not really like my, my place to say. But I do think that how the, the film is able to show the um, being disabled or having a disability is pretty smart. And I, and I do appreciate that aspect about the film as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean our listeners know I'm deaf. And so watching this movie, I don't know how other people feel about it. You're entitled to feel the way you feel. But for me, watching somebody use their hearing aids to take out alien monsters and using their disability as an advantage, that to me always rings pretty true. You know, that to me feels like put they're putting like actual care and they're listening to Millicent Simmons herself, who's deaf in real life, in terms of like make, making this character feel like a real person. Because it's it's tough, you know. It really is tough to portray these things on screen in a way that is inclusive without being, you know, exploitative, right? I what I appreciate about her character is that she's not invincible. She makes mistakes. She has her own sort of journey. She has an impact on the world, not despite her disability, but because of it, and uh, aligned with the rest of her entire being. And I, I personally, I think that they actually handle it pretty well. I'm sure other people have different takes, and they're certainly entitled to that for sure. But yeah, it, it certainly did not bother me whatsoever. In fact, I think that this is one of the few movies, one of the only like franchise movies really happening that even has this sort of element to it and does it as well as it does. So yeah, I, I certainly am a fan myself. And there's a big departure for me because when I watched the first Quiet Place, my hearing hadn't fully gone yet, you know? So like I wasn't using hearing aids yet, but I remember watching that movie and being like, you know, knowing that this was going to be my future, that I was going to be needing hearing aids pretty soon. I've obviously got them and now I have them. So like watching this in a theater three years later, hearing aids in tow and being able to uh, hear a lot of the conversations in this movie a lot better than I otherwise would have. It was a cool experience uh, for me personally. Yeah. And I was just thinking, yeah, so we have this and CODA coming out too. So it's going to be uh, yeah. a good year for uh, disability or the deaf community representation in film. So Sound of Metal kind of kicked it off, you know, it's like a wave, a sound wave. Um, sure. But yeah, I, I, I got to say, it, it could be, it's very easy to pick this movie apart. I think for me, one thing I haven't mentioned yet, I do think this movie's third act is like, bordering on incomplete <laughs> you know i think that it, it kind of ends on a whimper like i'm glad that it's as tight as it is and it's not too long but i i did find myself feeling a little underwhelmed there is a certain i don't even think it's a twist there's a plot development involving where these characters need to go that i thought was very strange it raised a lot of questions a lot of like why didn't anyone think of this before? Like I would have assumed that you could lampshade that with a quick thing, a dialogue, but no, I mean, it's, it ends up being the most obvious thing. And yeah, I think that that speaks a little bit to your earlier criticism of Krasinski's screenplay. I, I just think it's missing some world building flair that would have made this world feel like it has a little bit more flavor. I, I think that's the thing. One of the biggest limitations is that it's such a crowd pleasing franchise blockbuster that its world can feel a little bit sanitized a little bit unremarkable and that can be tough for some people especially if you're a fan of a lot of other dystopian post-apocalypse 
stories. I mean, just last year, we had The Last of Us Part Two, a video game, but a video game that very much is like a movie. And it, it's such a distinct difference between these two intellectual properties and the way that that world really feels like its own thing with rules that are very distinct. And you, when you're in that world, you know you're in that world. If you're in A Quiet Place Part Two, it, it kind of just feels a little bit like so many other movies and shows that we've seen in the genre. So it, it is sort of missing that. But I can't complain too much because Will, it's just so nice to see like something like this that's not based on a comic book or a, a book sure. or anything. It was just like an original idea and somebody made some pretty satisfying, crowd-pleasing movies out of them. I love to see it. Yeah, and this was the first film, if I recall correctly, that you did see in theaters uh, post-vaccination, right? This was my big return. Yeah, and there was nothing. I, I, there was nothing quite like it because this is the longest I'd ever gone between seeing movies in a theater ever. Because like I'd have to go back to the first time I ever watched a movie in a movie theater to see to for it to be over a year. Right, I've been watching movies multiple times per year since I was five years old, and so you know, sitting in the seat was one thing, but when the day one sequence starts in this movie and it stretches and fills the entire screen, like you kind of, you kind of prepped me for it. I did get a little misty eyed. I was like, Oh, I can't imagine like ever losing this. Right. If that's one thing that the pandemic has really made clearer to me than it was before. And I think that it was pretty clear, but there's always room for doubt, right? Is that this this experience can't be traded. Like you can't substitute the theatrical yeah. experience quite the same. Like it's not something we could just easily get rid of and expect nothing, like no change. Like, oh, watching it at home is the same. It's not, it just isn't. And that's ultimately why I am glad they held this movie off for theaters. Cause I think however you feel about the film, it does really complement the theatrical experience. And I think people are recognizing that it made, I think it's like 60 million on its opening weekend, which, you know, uh, coming towards the tail end of this pandemic is definitely very uh, helpful or hopeful, I guess, in terms of like recognizing that theaters can hopefully be sustaining for years to come. And I do hope that a movie like this is uh, going to lead the charge for people going back to theaters more comfortably in the future. Um, I don't know if it was the same for your showing, but there was like a little intro message that John Krasinski had at the beginning of this film where he was like basically just like, hey, thanks for coming out to see this movie in theaters. And I'm glad you guys. Okay. Yeah. There was a little thing where he was just like, I'm glad you guys recognize that theaters are awesome and stuff and thanks for coming out. And it was, yeah, it was a little nice thing. As long as it was not like the one for The Incredibles 2, where I was like, just start the movie. And they're like, we know uh, you've been waiting for 14 years. Oh, yeah, that like, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, we got it. We, we know. We, we, can you start the movie now? Sure. It's here. It's finally. Yeah. Okay, yeah, we got it. Can you just. <laughs> no, this one was real short and sweet. He was just like, basically just like, yeah, thanks for That's coming cool. out. Yeah, I mean, I think they did it like real quickly. Like they probably did like a press junket or something. But he was probably doing nice. some good yeah. news and it was just like right yeah. after it. Yeah. <laughs> I was. I wouldn't be surprised if he just did like that. Like he was just like yeah. in his room with like his tie and here's, stuff. But... Here's some really good news. You're here with me. Yes. <laughs> but don't take my word for it. Yeah. You're gonna see how great of a dad I am. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, there is a little bit of that. I, I did feel as well with this film where it's like he does kind of like make himself like the hero. But that was kind of more from like the last movie, so that didn't bother me as much this time. But right. I guess it's kind of like his ego kind of going in. But. You know, he's directing a movie and starring in and writing it. I guess that's to be expected. Yeah, I think that is spot on. Yeah, so what you were saying, it made $58.5 million uh, over Memorial Day weekend in the United States and Canada, and it made $22 million more than that internationally. So already an $80.5 million 
worldwide box office, which is definitely a sign that the movies are back. And uh, that's uh, great news for, I think, a lot of people who want to keep watching movies in movie theaters. I'm certainly one of them, especially after watching this movie. A bunch of other stuff we didn't get into. There, you know, Jaiman Hansu is in this movie as well. He, But I think we'd have to get into spoilers to kind of talk about that. Uh, Scoot McNary yeah. kind of shows up in this movie, which I was surprised <laughs> to see. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think we I think we can agree that it's a, a solid movie. We, of course, have our own little quibbles and, and criticisms. For me, ultimately, I come down on this with a kind of a B. You know, it's kind of between like a low B, solid B. I think uh, like a lot of the other movies I've seen this week, like The Dry, Cruella, uh, I think, that, yeah, this is another B. It's like all Bs for me this week. And for me, that's a solid recommendation. I think if you like the first one, this is very similar to it. It it feels a lot more of like a continuation than a sequel trying to really up the ante in artificial ways. And that's the kind of sequel or continuation, you know, that I personally like as a moviegoer. I like that sort of like fleshing out of the world. I'm glad that he didn't take too much from like, for example, Godfather part two. I was really glad that he didn't try to like weave the day one stuff throughout the whole movie. And because, you know, he might be thinking he's Francis Ford Coppola. That would have been probably unfortunate. I think this movie really works for what it's trying to do. And there's only a few compromises you have to deal with, particularly in the third act, which I think certainly has some troublesome screenplay directions but other than that i think it's a really really fine watch for me so what about you yeah i'm not too far from you um i was kind of between a b minus and a c plus when i was walking out of it because initially i was feeling a little uh underwhelmed by it it didn't have the same impact as the first movie uh, i didn't have the same strong sense of pacing either but you know just thinking back on it i do generally think it works it does kind of have as you're suggesting that desolation of small kind of thing where it feels like a middle chapter more than like a proper sequel to the point where uh i guess kind of mimicking the first movie it doesn't really have a clear resolution it just sort of ends whereas in the first movie i found that to be satisfying this movie i found that to be eh, a little bit annoying it just didn't work as well for me at this time in that respect but uh generally speaking i, I do think it works uh, i think krasinski is really coming into his own as a filmmaker clearly as we we're suggesting he takes like hues from other filmmakers to the point where i don't think he really has his own individual stamp yet it does kind of feel like he's uh you know borrowing notes from his peers but you know that's not the worst thing to do for you know a sitcom actor becoming a filmmaker i think he's taking the right lessons more often than not and i think he's taking uh a few risks that generally pay off and by and large i do think he is uh definitely at a better place now as a filmmaker than he was when he was making stuff like brief interviews with hideous men and the hollers which i don't believe john you've seen but neither of them are not, are worth your time i will admit so i think he is uh definitely improving as a filmmaker even though this film isn't quite as good as the last one so i'll give it uh, an admirable b minus yeah i think the only stamp that krasinski even seems to be trying to go for is the like family dynamic in a survivalist environment like he's trying that sort of aesthetic but so yeah what you're saying it's not a very unique directing flair it's not something that i think is very like if you're watching this movie you're like of course it's john krasinski like, that hasn't quite happened yet but i think on that note it's time to talk about emily blunt and fantastic four no okay that's fine we won't talk about that uh oh is that still a thing i know people I guess, keep I don't know. trying I, I didn't know if that's like an actual thing that's happening or if that's just like the fans are like they should play uh mr it's a Mrs. fan thing yeah, okay. yeah people yeah. can't stop you know 
can't help themselves. So yeah. yeah, that is a quiet place part two. B for me, B minus for Will Ashton. It's just 97 minutes long. Critics like it. It's uh, let's see what the Rotten Tomatoes score is. I actually haven't looked at it yet because um, we did mention the box office is really good. And I think the cinema score is pretty high as well. So I think it's like an A minus. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Rotten Tomatoes wise, um, it's 91% out of 222 reviews. Uh, average rating of 7.5 out of 10. I mean, that's about in line. I think a lot of people are saying it's good. You know, it's like, I don't, I haven't seen a lot of people who are like, this is amazing. It's going to blow your mind. We're certainly not in that camp. But yeah. yeah, as a theatrical experience, it certainly is satisfying for all the best ways it's supposed to be. And it's going to be available to stream on Paramount Plus pretty soon. The exclusivity window is not as wide as it used to be. So uh, it's going to be available on that streaming service in about 43, 42 days. It's supposed to be like 45 days after its theatrical debut. So if you can't see it in a theater or you want to keep playing it safe, which is totally understandable, you should be able to watch it on that service pretty soon. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Be sure to subscribe to Cinemaholics on your favorite podcast app of choice or find us on YouTube. See you all next time.